Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton, and I'm here to answer all of your mental health questions. And today, I believe we have nine. Yes, we have nine. And if you are new, welcome. I pull the questions from the community tab over on my YouTube channel. And it's not my main YouTube channel. It is my podcast YouTube channel. And that channel is called Opinions That Don't Matter. Or you can just get on YouTube and put in Katie Morton, ask Katie anything, and it will come up that way as well. But I ask for those questions on Sunday mornings at 6 a.m. Central Standard Time, and I pick the ones with the most thumbs-ups, meaning they got the most likes, and then the last one or two is usually just randomly selected. Therefore, everybody kind of gets a chance to get their questions answered. Now, that's enough for me, don't you think? Let's get into your questions, and we have this first question says, Hi, Katie. Why do I feel like a child even though I'm an adult? I'm 32 and I have a career and a partner and I'm living a responsible adult life, but I feel like a child. Whenever I'm subjective to quote unquote adult topics like alcohol, sex, etc., I catch myself thinking that those things are for adults only and that I am still too young to experience that. I feel guilty when I let myself do adult things. My childlike mindset affects my relationship as I think constantly that it's too early for me. I want to have a child one day, but the thought of it terrifies me at the same time because it feels like I'm not allowed to, um, it feels like I am not allowed as I am still a child myself. Do you know what can be the cause of that? Stigma around adult topics growing up or maybe a long lasting emotional abuse since I was very little until my early 20s? Many thanks for everything you do. I love your podcast and your channel. Of course, of course. This is a very interesting question. And obviously, it got a ton of thumbs ups, and a lot. There's a couple comments after um, about it because two other people had similar questions. Now, there there are a lot of different reasons. Just like anything, we can have this happen to us for a whole myriad of reasons in our life. But the fact that the person who asked this mentions that the stigma around adult topics growing up, and maybe long-lasting emotional abuse since I was very little until my early, early 20s. So those are two potentials that the person who asked this question is like bringing up like, what about these? And I would say that they definitely could both play a role. And here's why. Now, the first one, the stigma around adult topics, meaning that when you were a child, it was like not appropriate for you to ask questions that were more adult-like, or even as you grew up, it wasn't okay. Because we all know there's a certain freight, like a stage of our life where we're going to start being curious about sex and sexuality and dating. And we're going to have questions about, you know, starting our period or maybe masturbation or what dreams. It just depends on, you know, our, what we're experiencing and what our friends maybe are talking about. I remember asking my mom, this is like almost horrifying to think of, but I had watched some movie. I don't, I don't know what it was, or my friend had said something. Anyways, I also had an older brother, so heard things earlier than most my age. But I'd asked my mom what a blowjob meant. I didn't understand the term. And so I had asked her about it. And she essentially said, like, if I don't understand it, then I'm too young to know it, you know? And at the time, we didn't have the internet. So thank God I didn't, like, try Googling anything. I, like, tried to look in the Encyclopedia Britannica. And surprise, surprise, it didn't have the answer. But I bring that up because we're going to go through different phases in our lives where 
different terminology brought to our attention that we don't understand. And who do we ask when we don't understand things? Our parents. Now, in the case of this person, it's like if they asked their parents, they'd be like, that's adult stuff and you don't talk about it. So we were never given permission to question, to grow up, and to talk about things pertaining to adult life, even as we moved toward that ourselves, because each and every day, unfortunately, we get older, right? And so that kind of, uh, I don't even know, I don't want to call it necessarily a stigma, but more about like the inappropriateness of growing up that was like told to you over and over and over may have created this deep rooted belief that you aren't allowed to grow up, that it's not okay, and that you aren't adult, right? You were never able to talk about things, ask questions, all of that. So why would now be any different, right? We might have this just deep-rooted belief that we're we're just never adult enough. We're never going to be grown up enough or responsible enough. And that could also come from moving into the second thing that this person brought up, which was emotional abuse. If we were told that we're too stupid, too young, too this, too that, all pertaining to us essentially not being capable or responsible or enough to do these quote-unquote adult-like things, then we're going to struggle with being an adult as we get older because just the the sheer act of aging, which is just this natural progression of life, goes against what we believe about ourselves and what we were told throughout our life by our parents and caregivers. And so, yes, both of those could feed into your struggle to feel like an adult and constantly thinking that you're a child, even though you're 32. You're an adult. And I also do want to, because when I was reading this earlier, I was thinking, yes, there are many things that can keep us in childlike behavior. And there's a couple more that I want to talk about. But also, I do believe that there is this, for anybody else out there who maybe feels like I do, where you're like, when do I feel like an adult? Sometimes I think for many of us, being a quote unquote adult comes along with responsibilities that we maybe haven't chosen for ourselves, or we just thought it would be different. Because I'll speak personally that Sometimes I say to Sean, do you think if we decided that we wanted to have kids that we would feel more adult? And my friends who have kids are like, no, it doesn't help. It doesn't make anything better. You're just more responsible. You have more more that you're doing. Okay, so there's that. And then also I'd ask my mom at one point, because I'm 38, and I'd ask my mom, I was like, "Um, did you ever feel like, like an adult or because I don't feel like an adult. Like I'm 38 and I still think I'm like in my 20s. And like, I don't know. It's almost like what I thought being an adult would look and feel like for me just isn't the reality of life. And so I'm like, "Mm, these things don't equate. My mom's like, no, I, I don't even think I feel like an adult now. You know, she's in her 60s. So anyways, I wanted to bring that up as well because I think those are some of the components too that like maybe we had this preconceived notion of what it was going to look like and it doesn't or we thought it would feel a certain way and it also doesn't because we don't, how do we know what it's going to be for us to be an adult? An adult is such like a, even though I know it's a it's an actual word that has a definition, I feel like in a lot of ways it's very this very elusive thing that's happening, adulthood. Where is it? I don't know. Did it catch me? I'm not sure, right? And I think that a lot of that can lead to many of us feeling like, am I an adult? I don't know, okay? But not to get detract from this question too much, but I just wanted to mention that because I think that a lot of us feel that way where we're like, am I an adult? And, and I don't I don't feel like one either, so don't worry. Now, then another thing that can cause us to be somewhat developmentally arrested is abuse. And that's why I talked about that emotional abuse component, but also physical and sexual abuse. When we're in our developmental years, 
which is I from birth to 18, which I know you're like, that's like pretty much most of our life. Yeah, it's a huge chunk of our life because our brain is still forming. We're still figuring out who we are. And I would argue that personality development actually continues to happen you know, throughout our entire life. Um, but a lot of that in our 20s where we kind of figure out like who we are, it's more of an independence and growth can happen during that period. But either way, when we're abused at a young age, we can struggle to grow up because we don't have healthy attachment maybe. We are struggling with our own self-confidence. Maybe we've been told things or absorbed things through the abuse, meaning like let's say I don't believe that I'm I'm worth anything because I was told by my abuser that I'm, you know, stupid, little, dumb, blah, 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 whatever. And so that makes me struggle to even have a, a secure or a real sense of self. And I can act very, er, like, as a result over time, cannot have, you know, pushed myself in school, taken challenges with new relationships, right? There's so many things that we do without realizing it that are part of kind of like character development and personal growth. And we, if we don't feel safe to take those chances and to, to learn about those things, and we can be developmentally arrested because it never felt safe to do those things, right? So we kind of maybe could be stuck at the age when the abuse started happening. I've had tons of patients who've struggled with emotional, sexual, or physical abuse who, when triggered or when stressed out, revert back to that age. And it's usually like, I mean, depending on their situation, but it's a very young version of themselves, let's say eight, six, 10. And they act very childlike. And and that's very common. And part of it is why, and um, I mean, part of it, can, it can be healed through trauma work. And a huge component of that is that inner child work, getting back in touch with that child, us, and helping him or her to heal so that we can then move forward in our life and grow and be more adult. Does this make sense? I hope it's not too woo-woo or too extrapolated for you to follow along because things that happen to us when we're children, messages that are received or told to us directly or even through you know physical contact, we can absorb those and therefore not feel safe or okay with growing up for many different reasons. Um, I even had a patient of mine wanting to be childlike uh, drove her eating disorder as well. And part of it was because she was sexually abused by, I think it was an uncle or maybe a cousin. Anyway, they'd said something like, when you get older, you're going to be so much hotter and something gross like that to her. And so she never wanted to grow up. She never wanted to get bigger or develop, get older. Mm-mm. Because you could understand that would mean more abuse, right? And even just the thought of that and being attracted or attractive to that person was like revolting. And so she wanted to stay small. And that was, you know, again, what fed her eating disorder. Now, we had some comments after this that said, in addition to this, I feel the exact same way. It's like there are so many different parts of me that are random ages, that I'm not just one full age. For example, it feels 6, 12, 16, 18, 25, all those ages, right? So there are certain things that I feel I can't handle or deal with because I'm not experienced. What's your input on this, Katie? Now, I feel like I kind of answered that, but I do... I. I like added this in at this point because I want to talk about the different parts and not feeling like, oh, I'm just childlike, like the first person's question. Like we could feel childlike and there's no distinction of the ages, but this person's saying that they feel like they have the different parts of themselves that are at random ages. And I would, my hypothesis for that would be that we had abusive or traumatic, like traumatic situations that occurred at those ages. Therefore, when we're triggered in certain ways, we can revert back to that. Or we might struggle so much with depersonalization and derealization, otherwise known as DPDR, 
that we could be, because you know, I talk about dissociation on a spectrum, meaning that like in the lower grade, it's like, I don't know how I got home. I kind of just spaced out. I got overwhelmed and like, I don't have memory of this little clip in time all the way into dissociative identity disorder, which used to be called multiple personality disorder. Now, a lot of people with DID can have, uh, they've, they've split themselves in a protective way. I, I would argue like most of the time it's due to trauma, but I know there's other scenarios, but mostly from trauma, they split themselves into different versions, usually, but not always. It's like one protector of us. So it's like a really rough, gruff version. Another might be really meek and mild, like childlike. And I would wonder, I bring this up because I would wonder in my hypothesis that I would want to, you know, I want you to talk with your therapist to see if this lines up. I wonder if that's how it's broken up for you that your dissociative identity disorder maybe has caused you to break into parts of different ages of you. Now that's one hypothesis. My second hypothesis is that it's the trauma caused us to have these different, because we, if anybody isn't aware, there is something that's called parts work that you can do. And I don't do it in my practice a ton. I'm not super specialized in this, but very basically, parts work is when we identify and acknowledge these different components to ourselves because we can have a lot of like protector parts of ourselves that we have lined up over the years in order. It's almost like we're puffer fishing to the max and each layer of spines behind there's another layer and all these different parts protect the wounded childlike person inside of us that that we don't really know how to deal with. We don't know how to manage. We never let him or her feel what they need to feel or go through what they need to go through. So we can have all these parts lined up as a way to manage what's going on. And different things can ignite these different parts. Again, we can have one that's more protective, one that's more intellectual, one that's more childlike, et cetera. And I just bring that up because I think this parts work could be beneficial as well. And it might not be dissociative identity disorder. It might be a trauma response. And that's why we have these, you know, these different parts at different ages. So those are just some of my thoughts. Talk to your therapist, make sure you get properly diagnosed and treated. But I do believe with, uh, you know, a trauma specialist or some trauma informed work, you'll be able to heal. Now, the final question on top of this said, as an add-on, please, what if you feel like, feel like that, but you don't really have any childhood trauma? Could it just be because I was too sheltered as a kid? This one was interesting because being really sheltered as a child and having helicopter parents is or can be traumatic. Now, I know we think of trauma as, and this is why emotional abuse is often overlooked as well, like especially emotional neglect. I wouldn't even say emotional abuse as much as emotional neglect. The absence of something that was important for us is just as detrimental as something being added, like shouting, uh, punching, you know, sexual activities, things like that, that are abusive to children. The removal of certain things that are important can be traumatic as well and is abusive. And so I'm wondering if your parents being, if they were like helicopter parents and overly sheltering you, there's two things that could happen. Number one, being sheltered can mean that they are super, super rigid and the rules are really strict. And if you didn't go along with the rules, you'd get in big trouble and that can be traumatic, okay? We, I don't know if there was spanking and things like that, but that can be traumatic for a child. On the other side, but still within this like sheltered life, we can be taught to fear everything around us so much so that we don't feel it's safe to become an adult because if we just stay a child, mom and dad will protect me because they told me the world was so dangerous and they never let me do anything on my own. So I never got to prove to myself that I was okay to do it on my own and that it was safe to do it on my own. We never got that experience. So we're never able to, dev to develop and grow in a healthy way. 
Does that make sense? And so it doesn't necessarily have to be this like overt childhood trauma that we think of when we think of like a physical abuse, sexual abuse, or even a parent, emotional abuse, someone's shouting at us. It could be the fact that we were neglected in ways that were important for our development. And so, I mean, I've had patients who were like homeschooled and the parents sheltered them. They could only hang out with other children that had like very similar parents with very similar you know, backgrounds. Therefore, they never, and I know parents might think this is bad, but there's something good to children being able to like learn from mistakes. It's a huge component of being a human. And if children aren't allowed to like stray and do something like all, I was not a bad kid, guys. Like, even though I'm sure my mom would say, yeah, you were stubborn. I never smoked or drank or did drugs. I I didn't like have a bunch of boyfriends or girlfriends. Like I wasn't sneaking around, but I did like uh, my boyfriend at the time went to a different school, like a school next the town over. And I snuck into the dance with him because you couldn't bring a, a date from out of your school. It had to be someone from school. So I snuck in with him. And then of course, cause it's a small town and small town, everybody knew who I was. And then my mom got called and showed up and was like, you're embarrassing me, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not saying that that made my mom happier, that that was good, but breaking a rule and learning from it and testing boundaries sure is annoying to parents, but it's really important for kids and it's really important for teenagers as they develop their sense of self and their independence. And not having the opportunity to do that is not healthy either. And it can make you feel like the world's just not safe because you've never been able to do those like boundary checking activities. Does that make sense? I hope so. Let's move on to question number two. Now, question number two says, hey, Katie, how do I get over the feeling of not deserving to be in therapy and get help or get better? Part of me knows that I do need the help because inside I feel like a mess, but outwardly I appear fine and um, and fully functional. So every time I go, I start to feel like I don't deserve to be there and that I'm just wasting my therapist's time because my issues can't be that bad. I'm still functioning after all and have been able to push through and make it as far this far on my own. Now, this is super, super common. And I don't say that to like invalidate or minimize your upset, but it's very common for us to feel like we don't deserve to get better, that we're taking time from someone else and we're fine. That minimization has helped us continue. It's part of our what we've done to adapt so that we can keep doing what we need to do. And what I mean by that is if we wallowed in our experience and told ourselves just how bad everything was and how bad we were feeling and we like validated it and let it wash over us and move on, then we actually wouldn't maybe need as much therapy as we do. And hear me out because if we allow ourselves to feel it and experience it and know it's okay and like validate it and let it happen, then we wouldn't be stuffing it down and it wouldn't be erupting in other parts of our life. We wouldn't be having maybe such bad depression or anxiety or a PTSD response right? Therefore, the reason that we're having these thoughts and the reason it is so incredibly common is because for so long, we've told ourselves that we're okay, that we're fine, that we don't need any help, that we're getting along just good as it is. And this is just what life is, right? We've kind of minimized, shit talked and stuffed our feelings down. And that's why we're struggling now to let go and to let someone assist. And we're like, I'm functioning after all, I'm doing okay. No, you're not. What we're doing is white knuckling it, barely hanging on, just getting things done and feeling terrible all the time. 
And that's why we reached out. And so I want you to know, I mean, two parts. Number one is that functioning, just barely functioning, barely getting through life and feeling like shit every day is not acceptable. And that's not anything that anybody should have to go through for very long. And so that discomfort or that upset that you were experiencing is why you reached out for help. And as maybe anti-therapisty as this sounds, don't let yourself forget that because that's why you reached out. And that problem still exists. We can't just fix it overnight, because it didn't happen overnight, right? Well, it didn't all of a sudden come up. So we, it's going to take us some time to process through all the stuff we maybe been like stuffing deep down into our bodies and trying to ignore. And then the second component is that the sooner we get help in general, the better. And everyone can benefit from therapy. And you getting therapy and getting help doesn't take it from someone else. It's not like pie. Me taking a slice doesn't mean that you can't get one. There's plenty of support to go around. There's plenty of help out there. And as long as you're able to show up and do the work in therapy, you take that spot. I was just talking to another another member of our community the other day how her therapist let her know just how many people cancel or no-show. You guys, it's so many. Or how many patients just don't even bother with homework, don't even try, don't even do the work. And yes, I know therapy's hard. I'm not trying to like judge anyone. I'm just saying that if you're going to show up and try to do the work and you're participating in therapy, you get it. It's there for you. It's there for the taking. It's what a therapist just thrives on. If I had ev- if every one of my patients over the years had been this type of patient, oh my God, my job would have been so much easier. Each and every week, I at least had one, if not two no-shows and a couple of cancellations or rescheduled. And so if you're showing up and you're taking up your therapist's time like they've requested that you do, and you're doing your best to share and work and try the homework, you take it, okay? Because I don't think, I think a lot of people don't realize just how many people don't, I don't even show up for therapy. I used to have this one patient for years who would just not show up and then randomly show up one week. So I'd put her at the end of my day because I'd give her like 15, 20 minutes and then I'd go home. I'd just like do my paperwork and head home. Um, and then she'd just come in and pay like hundreds of dollars, you guys, because of all the sessions she'd missed and just apologize and then sit in for one session to only to do that all over again where she just wouldn't show up. It was so strange. And I tried to bring it up in therapy and, you know, anyway, won't get into that. But to get over that feeling of not deserving it, we have to talk to ourselves more kindly about it and check our facts. And that's what I was just giving you there. It's just some facts, some information, so that when you think, oh, I'm not deserving, I shouldn't do this, I don't, you know, like, oh, this isn't, I, I'm not putting in enough work or I'm not worth the effort or, you know, my life's just never going to be good anyway. Like whatever shit we tell ourselves, I'm too stupid, too lazy, too whatever to, to be deserving of this help. We're going to have to pay attention to those thoughts, recognize that they're happening, and then challenge them. Whether it's through facts about, you know, what I'm just telling you that like, hey, you have every right to take that time. And if you're working in therapy, your therapist is super stoked. If you show up every session, yes, yay. And if you don't like the way you feel right now and you want to get better, then you're deserving of it. And you know, everybody can benefit. And you can even use some bridge statements, right? You could use um, some statements like, it, I'm open to the belief that maybe at some point I could deserve help, you know? And I know bridge statements can be kind of tricky and they don't really feel that positive at first because they're really not. They're just a little less negative. But we'll we'll work, you know, work that angle. Keep considering it. Don't let these thoughts 
hang around in your head as if they're facts because they're not. They're just thoughts and false beliefs about yourself. Um, And we have to challenge them. Now, a comment says, I can relate. How can one get past feeling like they only deserve care at the worst or at their worst, I'd assume? It's as if my brain triages my symptoms and decides that it's not bad enough to seek help or receive care. Now, in order to get past the feeling like you have to be in a terrible spot before you get care, it's it's back to, it's, it's checking the facts and it's bridge statements again. And the facts would be that we know through research that the sooner people speak up and reach out, the better. This goes for depression symptoms, anxiety symptoms, PTSD symptoms, eating disorders, self-injury urges, suicidal thoughts, mental illness, a schizophrenia, a schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, you name it run the through the whole DSM or the ICD-11, all diagnoses, the sooner you get help, the better. And here's another fact to put into your little tool belt. Think of it like physical health because mental health is no different. If I have a, a kind of a sore throat and a stuffy nose, I'm like, I think I'm getting strep throat shit, you know? And I don't go to the doctor. I just keep doing what I'm doing, even though I'm super tired. I'm like, push through, Katie. You got to work out. You need to be doing all your job stuff. You need to spend time with friends. You got to do all this shit all the time. No, you know, not getting enough sleep, not even slowing down in the slightest. I'm like, whatever. Just keep white knuckling it. I'm just going to do it. That sore throat and stuffy nose can turn into strep throat. And then strep throat can get worse and worse. And I can get such a bad viral infection. Or maybe let's say the the runny nose turns into like bronchitis. And then maybe pneumonia, right? We all know that the longer illnesses go untreated, the worse they get. And your mental health is no different. So put that in your toolbox to tell yourself when you think that you only have to be your worst. Do you think you can only see a doctor if you have walking pneumonia or, I don't know, stage four cancer? I don't think you do. And your mental health is no different. And the sooner that we reach out, actually, the less care we're going to need and the faster we'll start feeling better. And um, okay, now the next, there was another question or comment on this. It said, Katie, I hope maybe this is relevant to the topic. I would love to hear your take on the importance of the therapeutic relationship. And I allowed this one in because there's something to this, how sometimes we can feel like we're not deserving of our therapist's time because, you know, it could be attachment-based, but we'll get into it. So love to hear your take on the importance of the therapeutic relationship. I also appear to be doing fine sometimes. I can talk myself out of being worthy of help, but through therapy, I've realized that I have high-functioning depression. Mm-hmm. My therapist lets me guide the conversation, but she will follow up on topics. And last time I brought up a different issue that has been bothering me and we had a deeper conversation than I've ever had with anyone about it. No one else in my life listens to me like that or takes time to really talk or challenge me the way that she does. Maybe for some of us who fight with the feelings of being unworthy of therapy, it's more about continuing to take the leap in our relationship with our therapist because there's probably value in it if you're trying, right? Right. I'm still pretty new to therapy, five months in. Okay. Now, I really liked that, and I just wanted to bring it up because I think it's important and it's true. There could be a component in here where because of the therapeutic relationship and how that can connect in our mind without us realizing it to our relationship with our mother or father, whoever our primary caregiver is, we can often attach our, you know, our therapist in, or not attach, but place them in that role without realizing it and treat them as such. Hence transference, right? We transfer onto our therapist, a relationship we've had in our past that we're struggling with. So because of that transference, we can put, we can have that same dynamic happen again. Meaning 
that let's say my relationship with my mom has always been kind of sticky and messy and she never was really there for me in the way that I wanted. And it was kind of like she'd be there one day and then gone the next. So if I believe that if I'm transferring that onto my therapist, then I'm going to struggle in my belief that I deserve to get better or deserve to receive her care because I'm going to think, well, you know, she's just like my mom and she's just going to leave me anyways. Or she's just like my mom. I can't rely on her. Or, you know, she's just like my dad. She's going to say things are okay, but they're really not. And then she's going to be mad that I took up her time, right? We can be transferring this onto our therapeutic relationship and act out of it as such. So that's why that was important. Now we have another comment on this. It said, also, if connected and not a tangent, how do you get others to understand this when the outside doesn't match the inside? I can perform life okay, but friends say, you're better or seem better when actually I'm struggling with suicidal thoughts daily and self-harming and purging all throughout the day. But I'm better as that, uh, but I'm better as that's what everyone sees, so I can't get help despite feeling like I need it. I mean, how do you get others to understand? We're going to have to pick some people who are super close to us who we can really have multiple conversations with about this topic. And the reason I say multiple conversations is not because these are lengthy and need to go on for a long time. I just don't ever think it's a good idea to feel like we have to get everything out in one conversation. And so I believe this should be like progressive conversations, meaning let's start with just the basics. Let's do some what we call psychoeducation, meaning educate them about our mental illness. And so if someone says, you know, you you look better. You you seem better. I would say something to the effect of, unfortunately, because I've been struggling for so long, I've gotten really good at pretending to be okay. And, you know, that's just not how I'm feeling, but I'm getting there. You know, my depression's still here, but I'm trying to work on it, right? So we acknowledge that that's not what's happening. We tell them how we're really feeling and that we're working on it. And if we want, we can end with something that we need from them. And you could say, even you just bringing this up or saying, hey, how are you doing and really checking in with me will give me an opportunity to be honest. And that's what I'm supposed to be practicing right now. You know, so we can give them an ask. Could you do this for me? That would be helpful. Then another conversation could be something to the effect of when they check back in and say, hey, how are you? You know, I hate to say it, but you seem like you're doing fine. You can say, oh, I'm doing that thing again where I pretend to be fine. And thanks for checking in. You know, I'm looking into finding a therapist or my therapy session went well, but, you know, still struggling with some depressive thoughts and just self-destructive behavior. You know, we don't have to get into the details. We can give them a little bit at a time. And then again, we can go in with an ask. You know, just the checking in has been really great. And would you mind making a call to see if you can make me an appointment with a therapist? I have so much, it gives me such anxiety to get on the phone, right? Can we do, do something like that? And keep these conversations going. And I think just being honest with one person will be incredibly beneficial. Now, I know you might feel like, well, I feel like I need to tell everybody. You don't have to tell everybody. We can just pick one person we feel safe having these small conversations with and build up as we share with them more what's going on with us. Now, I don't mean that we ever need to dump everything, but we can just tell them, no, the depressive symptoms are still here and the self-destructive hate behavior still hanging around, you know, but I'm doing my best and thanks for checking in. And, and then, you know, you could even if you feel like, oh, I'm such a Debbie Downer because I've heard from a lot of you, you don't want to like burden people. We can end with something lighthearted, like, but, you know, the one thing that is going well is is seeing you or, you know, I do love that the weather's cooled down or my job has been pretty, pretty, you know, mellow, no stress there. We can end with something more lighthearted and, and that can help too. Now, somebody had another question and said, 
I have a follow-up question. I do not feel like I'm fully better, but I'm feeling better than I did six months ago. Yay! Sometimes I feel fine, but other times I do not feel fine. And because of this, there are some times when I don't know what to talk about in therapy, and I feel like I should just stop going. Oh, interesting, because I'm fine at some points, and sometimes I don't have anything to talk about. Also, I sometimes feel bad, but still don't know what to talk about in therapy. Is this a problem? No, this isn't a problem. And my advice on this is to let your therapist know that you're doing this, that this is coming up for you. It's okay. It's really, really common. Because what your therapist is going to need to do, and this would be the ask, if they don't bring it up, ask. It's okay to ask your therapist for things. That's what we're there for. Ask them to set up a treatment plan with you if they haven't already. Be like, hey, I listened to this therapist on the internet. She talks about treatment plans. Could we put one together? That think that would help me, you know, keep working on myself even when I feel like maybe I'm not as bad as I was last week or whatever. However you want to verbalize it like you did here. Like sometimes you're okay. Because otherwise I don't know what to talk about, right? Because the truth is that sometimes you just maybe haven't had as much uh, stress happen that week, or maybe your resilience is just a little bit higher that week. Maybe you slept better, ate better, whatever. There could be a lot of different reasons. Also, we all know our symptoms kind of come and go at at will, and that can be both good and bad. But just because we have these periods of feeling better doesn't mean we don't need help. It means that that's the time where we need to create safety plans, coping skill lists, work on using those coping skills so that we build up resources we can have for later when we maybe feel like shit. We need to use that time to our benefit. And so ask your therapist for that. Ask her to work with you on, you know, a a broader treatment plan or more coping skills or ways that we can better manage when we feel, you know, quote unquote, better. Because we all go through those ebbs and flows and it doesn't mean you don't need help. It just means that we need to utilize that time better. Okay? Now, the final comment on this question says, can you talk about how this impacts my interactions with my therapist? I more or less feel like I deserve to get help, but every time I bring up something in therapy that has a lot of shame, like emotional abuse, I feel like I'm such a burden to my therapist. She keeps telling me I'm not, but I can't seem to take her seriously, and I'm scared to tell her just how bad things get sometimes. Okay. Now, I know this is hard, and this is going to force you out. It's going to push back against that shame, and I know that shame is so heavy, and it we think that if we show people what we're truly experiencing, that there's going to be a ton of judgment or that someone's going to think we're making it up or that, or see just how bad of a person we really are, right? There's so much worry when it comes to that. But I'm here to tell you that therapy is the one place where we can be honest, as honest as we're able. And I would encourage you to start writing out things maybe and giving it to her as a way to tell her how bad things have gotten. Or maybe you practice saying it ahead of time so then you can just say it when you get there or you leave a voicemail or send an email or a text or whatever they allow. Another way to communicate can get that out and get that to them so that we we feel free to, or we feel like we're able to share what we're really going through and they can meet us there. Does that make sense? I hope so. Now, if we're, that pushing past that shame is going to take it's going to take some work now the opposite of shame is really courage and there's a couple of ways we can go about this number 1 we can use bridge statements we can challenge some of those thoughts and again they might not be positive but the fact that like some that shame voice that's like something's inherently wrong with me i'm so broken i can never be fixed you know bridge statement might be like 
it's possible that I'm not 100% correct on that, that maybe like a 1% of me isn't a total shit bag, right? Now I know again, you're like, that's not really positive. It's more positive than it was, right? It was, the other comment was more negative. So using those bridge statements can help too, because if we don't push ourselves, I even encourage my patients sometimes to just like, just say it, just drop it. Like when you come in next time, just blurt it out. We don't have to have context. Or if you want to do it right before the end of a session, so you can just leave, you can do that too. Doorknob confessions are fine. Just getting it out is what the goal is, right? And so if you're feeling like you can't push past, we're going to have to find a way to circumvent that defense mechanism. Even maybe if you can't tell your therapist the actual thing, just say, hey, I really want to tell you more and be more honest about how things are, but I just get so scared. And then just let your therapist do their work because part of our job is like figuring out how to calm your defense mechanisms so that we can get in and so that you feel okay sharing stuff that maybe you haven't shared with anybody else. And it takes work and it takes kind of like, it's it's a craft. I feel like it's a... We're all, we all have a good way of getting things out of people so that they feel safe doing so. So let your therapist do their job and work to get it out. You can just let them know this is happening and that doesn't mean you have to share any of it, if that makes sense. Okay? With that long question, lots of comments on that, let's move on to question number three. This question says, Hi, Katie. I've noticed that lots of times after a therapy session, my brain turns to mush. You and me both. I keep having those uh moments where... Oh, I keep, I keep having those uh, uh moments where you know the answer, but it's just not coming to you. Like it's on the tip of your tongue and just out of reach. I hate that feeling. I keep blanking on really simple things. Should I tell my therapist about this? And why does this happen? Is it bad? Or is it just a side effect of talking about something emotional? Is this a type of dissociation or just brain fog? So let's just start with the first question. Should I tell my therapist about this? Yes, 100%. Now, there's many reasons for this. First, your therapist just needs to know this is happening because it's a symptom of therapy. So we need to figure out where it's coming from and be curious about that. It could be that we're doing too much too fast. It could be we're not having enough time to kind of like wean out of therapy. Like I, especially with uh, my patients who are working on trauma or we're working through some shame spirals or shame thoughts, I'm gonna make sure that I give them some time. So let's say we have 50-minute sessions I'm going to let them really dig into it for like 30, 35 minutes. And the last like 15, 20 minutes are to kind of come come out of it. Talk about something a little more lighthearted, get some homework, some debriefing. <sighs> so that when we leave, we're not agitated. And I don't, because I don't want my patients driving home feeling like really discombobulated, right? That's not safe either or in a dissociative state. I want to make sure they're grounded and here. And so let your therapist know because there could be different things that they can do to help you better manage. Now, why does this happen? We kind of got into that. It could be too much too fast. It could be not enough time coming out of it. It could be that, you know, the emotional toll or the stress of talking about the things that you're working on in therapy has just gotten to be too much. That's also possible. And then you said, is this a type of dissociation? The, the answer is not really. Dissociation is more of a disconnection, feeling like you're not really in yourself and you can't like you don't have any memory. It doesn't necessarily have to do with like feeling like your brain is mush. Now, everybody has a different experience, so I don't want to completely rule it out, but my gut tells me it's not that. I think it's the the hangover effect of therapy, the, the emotional toll it's taken on you. 
Um, okay, so why does it happen? It could be any of those things. Is it bad? No, this isn't bad. This is just more information. The more information we have and the more we honest we can be about our symptoms, the better off we'll be. And I have a feeling that this is something that can be worked on in a bunch of different ways, whether it's like length of session, more time to unwind, um, maybe more frequency of sessions. I find sometimes when my patients feel completely exhausted by a session that we need to have more sessions because then we don't have to dump everything into one, if that makes sense. Um, there's a lot of different ways we could do it, but no, it's not bad. And it could be a side effect of talking about something emotional 100%. And that's that answers all the questions. So I hope that that kind of helps because it, it's common. I mean, especially after like trauma or EMDR or even my patients um, with eating disorders when I do, I used to do these food outings with my patients where I'd go and eat with them and then we'd have a, a like not quite a full session, but almost a full session after. So it'd be like a session and a half of time. That would be really exhausting for them because not only are they challenging their eating disorder by eating with me like a regular meal and I do challenge them to, you know, eat a regular amount. Um, and then we process what comes up for them and that can be really exhausting. And so that definitely could be part of what's going on. Now, there was a comment on this and it says, is it normal to forget everything that you talked about right after a session? Then it slowly com comes back a few days after that. It definitely is normal. It could be due to the just emotional stress of it or even dissociation. Because sometimes if we're slightly dissociated, but not completely, we do have those memories. They're just tricky to recall because we're kind of spaced out and not there. And so it could be any number of things that have kind of maxed your system out so that you, like afterwards, you just feel like it's like, you know, like you go out and maybe come back and your roommate or your spouse or partner is like, hey, what'd you talk about in therapy? How'd it go? And you're like, I have no idea. You know, that that could be because it's just so stressful. And again, please let your therapist know this may mean that we're going too fast or that they're not giving you enough time to kind of come down out of it. And maybe there's not enough like wrap up at the end because another thing a therapist can do is kind of walk you through like, okay, so today, just to recap, we talked about X, Y, or Z and your homework is this. And sometimes that helps like, oh, okay, yeah, put it all, you know, kind of put it into that, that ball, that narrative and um, roll it away into our memory. So there's a couple things they might be able to do. So let them know that that's happening. And then the final follow-up on this said, what about if it happens during session? It's like hitting a brick wall or the funnel's gotten jammed. What could this mean? Now, this could mean, again, and I don't mean to be like a broken record, but anything during session, right after session, or for you know the next week before your next, if any of this is happening you have to tell your therapist because I think that too much is going on too fast. And we just need to slow down a little bit so that our brain doesn't feel so like, ah, like overwhelmed and our emotion, like our nervous system is going to be ramped up because it's stressful. It's emotional. We're talking about things maybe we never have before. And so because of that, we just may need to slow it down or have more time to decompress before we have to go back out into the world. And the fact that, that this person saying it's happening during session my hypothesis would be that we're doing too much in session. That's too fast, too much. So let your therapist know. Say, maybe we need to slow it down because during session, I find myself just like, uh, like I can't even think it's too, you know, it's too much. Maybe this means that we need to have a task that we're doing in session at the same time. A nice distraction can really help. That could be anything from like thinking putty that we have in our hands to coloring or drawing um, or even knitting. I had a patient who used to knit. Um, there can be any number of things that you can do to kind of help you soothe your system while you're there, but let them know this is happening so they can like slow down the process so it doesn't continue to happen. Okay? Here. Let's move on to question number four. 
This question says, Hey, Katie, I was wondering if therapists change their body positions for a reason or a purpose. We do. Uh, Like to help the patient feel more, uh, patient or client feel more at ease. Recently, my therapist has starting started sitting and moving in ways that are less professional, like resting her head on her hand or turning to one side and leaning against the armrest when I'm incredibly tense and or keep saying, I don't know, or I don't want to. I was initially amused by all the shifting and positioning she started doing, but now I'm curious. Does she want me to mirror her? Because on the flip side, I am tensed and the moment and the most movement I do is anxiety-based pulling at my fingers. Interesting. Okay, so Therapists do not want you to mirror them. We often mirror you. Now, if you have your hands crossed, uh, you know, across your chest and you lean towards me to tell me something, I will do the same. I'll cross my arms across my chest and I'll lean towards you. And I'm just mirroring your behavior and your body language to help you know that I'm with you. And you'll be surprised how much more open and honest we feel with people who mirror our body language. Because if we're open and calm and like rested and the person across from us is like really crunched together, we can start to kind of pick up on that. And you'll hear people say, man, they made me feel so anxious, right? Or God, they they just they're tension. I just feel like I'm tense now. Right? We can kind of pick up on people's body language and emotions and sensations, and therefore in therapy, we we mirror your body language somewhat. And then, so that's a huge component of what we learn in in school is like how to mirror patients' body language and also how to appear non-confrontational. So crossing of the arms isn't something that therapists do that often. We don't tend to 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 do that because it's closed. It's a closed off body position. Now, having your hands resting on your side or on your lap, palms open and up, um, kind of like I kind of curl my fingers into each other and kind of have my hands next to one another. It's seen as a much more open position, much more relaxed, much more approachable. And that's really the goal as a therapist is to be approachable. And so your therapist may be doing this as a way to kind of mimic what calm and relaxed body language is since you struggle with that so much. Now, you could mirror her if you wanted, but that's not really the goal. I think the goal is for her to appear calm and relaxed with you as to not exacerbate your already existing anxiety. And so she's probably acutely aware of that. And it might be a new thing. She Maybe she went to a conference or read a book or article about it. I do stuff like that all the time and it will change something that I do in person with patients, but that might be something that she's doing. And I think um, if it's bothering you, let her know. If you find it helpful, you can let her know as well. But it's really, we, we do, we are acutely aware of how we sit, how we are angled toward, you know, our patients, whether they're in a chair or a couch or I have patients when I sit on the floor or whatever, we, you know, we pay attention to that. We we mimic behavior where it's helpful and try to, uh, you know, show you other behavior to help soothe when when you need it. And so, you know, we try to demonstrate things that are helpful. And that's really, that's really all there is to it. But you can always ask your therapist, don't think that like we're keeping secrets and this can't be talked about. Now, there was an add-on to this and it says, my therapist once pointed out some of my protective, here we go, body language. And while I initially appreciated her noticing my cues, now every time I go to naturally make that gesture, I'll recognize it and do something else instead. I know her intent wasn't to call me out, but that's what's happened in my brain. It's actually okay that you're noticing. It's probably really annoying maybe and that's why you're bringing it up with me. But I think... 
instead of feeling like you can't make that gesture, because you still can, let's say the crossing the arms is like you're protective and you, maybe you can pull your shoulders up towards your ears, right? We can still do protective body language, but I think I would encourage you instead of thinking, oh, I can't. And then you're like, fuck, why'd you have to bring this up? Why'd you have to point this out? Now that's all I can think about. Instead of taking it there, my challenge for you would be, what triggered me to get protective? Do I feel vulnerable right now? Do I feel like I need to be acutely aware of my surroundings? Do I feel like I'm threatened? Think about those things instead, because that's actually more important. It's important that we notice the gestures, but that's only a small component where it's like we have a behavioral reaction. But now we have to take that and use it. So we have to say, hey, I'm doing that thing again. I'm being really protective of myself. Why? So we have to dig into the why. We have to be curious. We have to be a detective about our emotional experience. So like, huh, did my therapist say something? Did something happen in my real life? What happened right now to make me want to cross my arms or or lean way back or stop making eye contact, right? There's certain things that we can do that can be very protective. And why is that coming up for me? What triggered it? And again, no judgments, just be curious. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. Question number five says, Katie, is closure a necessary part of healing a childhood trauma? Or is it better to not pursue it since it might backfire on the person? For example, I was bullied when I was a child and I still live close to that bully. That bully is not tormenting me physically anymore, but from time to time, I still remember the painful memories. It's been 18 years, I think. I fear that if I confront that bully, it will make it harder for me to heal since they might not apologize or claim that they don't remember the incident. What coping mechanisms are suitable for healing if closure is such a daunting task? Thank you. Closure can be, okay, closure is helpful and important, yes. Is it necessary? Yes. Is what you're talking about here closure? Not at all. You're talking about confrontation or asserting yourself to the person who harmed you. That's not closure. Closure is when we it's kind of one of the final stages of processing a trauma or a situation or whatever we're going through. We wrap it up. So we've been working on it, talking about it, letting ourselves feel all the feels, as uncomfortable as they are. And then at the end, we're like, you know what? I wish them all the best. And we move on. There's no emotional charge with that situation or that person or that experience that we have. We just move on. We've closed the door on it. We have closure. It's over. Bye-bye. I know a lot of times, especially in film and I don't know why, and some, maybe sometimes books and stuff too, but they talk about how closure needs to be this like, I saw them, uh, they, romantically, I feel like they put this in all rom-coms and stuff where they like see their ex person with a new person. They're like, I saw them and they're happy and I was happy for them. And I got finally got closure. Or I sat down and had lunch with them and I finally got closure. That's not what closure really is. Closure is actually all about you and how you experienced it and you being okay. That part of like, and I'm okay with it and I moved on. That's the closure component. And it can or cannot involve the other person. Now, in this scenario, I don't, I don't like to put too much pressure on how other people may react or respond to us because we don't have control over that. We can only control ourselves. And so I don't even believe that you should reach out to this bully. We They could make things worse. Like you said, they could say that it didn't even happen. They could say that you're making it up or you must have the wrong person or who are you? We don't even know. And that can be really minimizing, really invalidating and super upsetting. 
Therefore, I think I would work on the closure part with yourself in therapy, processing what you went through so much so that you can let it go. So even the urge to see them or talk to them, you're like, nah, I'm fine. I'm good. Cool. And then on to the next component says what coping mechanisms are suitable for healing. Talking about it, maybe since this is a trauma, maybe something like EMDR or somatic experiencing therapy where we heal through movement, shaking things out, focusing on what we're what we went through, you know, the bullying and the trauma, focusing on that while we move our bodies. Um, even group therapy, group trauma therapy could be really healing. Um, any of those things could be extremely beneficial. And taking care of your basic needs, let's not forget to build up our resilience so that we're not as vulnerable to the emotions as they come up. So basic things like showering regularly, eating regularly, drinking enough water, getting enough sleep, taking medications where they're prescribed, uh, not overdoing drugs or alcohol or anything like that that could, you know, make things harder for us. All of that will, you know, build up our resilience a little bit so that we're better able to weather the triggers and the upsets that can come along with processing something like bullying. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. Ugh, what a jerk. I'm going to punch him in the throat. Okay, let's move on. There was a comment on this and says, yes, I wonder this too. Can healing from, from abuse be found without confronting the abuser, whether a bully or a parent or some other person? I am unwilling to confront the persons who abuse me because I feel like they would deny it. And in one of the instances, I'm not 100% sure who the abuser was. Very common. Our memories, it can be hard. I know it was one of two people, but I can't remember completely. So I feel like if I say something to them and I choose the wrong person to confront, I'll be doing something horrible by causing, um, by accusing them without knowing for sure. But I want to heal from this and stop having so much trauma responses, so many trauma responses all the time. Again, you don't have to confront someone. It's more about your process and your healing and what you have to do for your own story and your own emotional charge. And again, it can be talk therapy and you know talking it out till there's no, no emotional left, no emotional charge left in it. Could be EMDR, could be somatic experiencing, could be even like I mean, in my book, Traumatized, that's out now, I talk about all the different types of trauma treatment. So if one doesn't work for you, don't think that there aren't other options. There are a ton of options out there. Okay. And talk therapy only works for like 40% of people. So that means that 60% of us are like, mm, this isn't helpful. And so it's okay to need something more. Let's move on to question number six. And this says, hi, Katie, may you please talk about how and why such small or short-term things can have a deep lasting impact on us? Why is it the little things like the way a parent spoke to um, or about me can hurt more than the physical aspect of things? Further, I was at a highly competitive school for a year and they basically trained me to attach my worth to my grades, but it was only one year and five years, um, but it was only one year and five years on, it still affects me. I'm still trying to work on detaching my grades from my identity, but it's a massive struggle. Before then, I didn't even care about my grades, to be quite honest. How do we go about consciously unlearning things that were subconsciously learned or instilled in us? It's a great question. And the truth is that it doesn't things don't have to last a long time to leave a lasting impact on us. Traumas don't have to go on for years and years for them to affect us. It's more about what happens and what story we tell ourselves about it. Now, when we're young, we're much more vulnerable to being harmed in general. Not only are we more dependent on other people, but we're also still developing our sense of self. And so hearing someone say that we're stupid or not good enough or um, or whatever, or doing abusive things, you know, 
we, because we don't know any better, can just believe them. Their horrible thing, those horrible things they've said or done to us become facts, become deep held beliefs, because we're still looking into our environment and ourselves to try to figure out who the hell we are and what we're about. And if from a young age, someone tells us we're lazy, stupid, or this is what love looks like, or people who love you hit you sometimes because they want to keep you safe or keep you in, in check or, you know, whatever it is we're told. We don't know any better and we don't have anybody possibly telling us anything different. And so it's so much easier to believe. And even one instance of a trauma or abuse can leave a lasting impact. And that's why it's so important we get into trauma treatment as soon as possible. And that's why a lot of people have bunches of traumas built up, right? Because it's it's not common for an abusive parent to only do it to us once. It's usually repeated over years or months, or even if it's like three times in this one week, that's still repeated trauma. That's still complex PTSD. That's still a lot to unpack, and we're going to need to get some support going through it. And so don't think that there's a time, uh, not even time limit, but like a time frame on abuse or development of PTSD. Sure, if we talk about diagnostically, like how we're going to diagnose and treat, there's there's time frames, like you know, six months for this or whatever. But what I'm telling you now is that things, the pain doesn't have to last for a long time to have a lasting impact. It's all about what we tell ourselves about it. We all know we can re-traumatize ourselves with flashbacks or even just telling ourselves the same thing over and over. Like, yes, I am stupid. I am lazy. If we tell ourselves that over and over, we're going to start to believe it. And so even just one thing happening can be enough to to harm us and to affect us. And that's why we have to find some support and a therapist that we connect with so that we can talk through it, work through it until it doesn't affect us anymore. Because you can't get there. We just have to get some support along the way. Now, there was a comment on this and it said, oh, and sorry, before I do that, they said, um, how do we go about consciously unlearning the things that we subconsciously learned? A lot of that is through therapy. Also, the bridge statements that I talk about, challenging those thoughts, and even journaling about it because sometimes we keep so much running through our head that we use that as a weapon against ourselves, right? We say those harmful things over and over. Getting it out on paper and arguing back, like checking our facts, all of those things can be really helpful in kind of untangling these falsely held beliefs about ourselves. Now, the comment on this said, yes, is there such a thing as subtle emotional manipulation over the course of a childhood where they are great parents, but because children are so persuadable, they instill negative beliefs in you about the world and yourself through the way that they talk about these things? Is this just the, um, the nature of everyone's childhood, or is this like a quote-unquote thing? For context, I realized in therapy that I treat my mom's opinion as fact. And she pretty much directs my life because of this, whether she knows that's what she's doing or not. So because of this relationship dynamic, I feel like I've been more susceptible to adopting her negative worldviews and materialism or focus on physical appearance and grades as identity. Sorry, it's a long add-on and I hope it makes sense. It totally makes sense. Now, the truth about this is that subtle emotional manipulation is something parents do when they're having a hard time. it It's not always overt abuse, meaning a parent who manipulates their child may be doing so because they think they're helping them. And just hear me out. Some parents will try to, you know, to, uh, even just basic learning, let's say. I'm not going to 
praise my child for not doing something properly, but I am going to praise them when they do do something properly and maybe give them, you know, some extra bonuses. Like, oh, you get more time on the iPad or get to watch your favorite show or you get a treat. I can do those things. And you could call that emotional manipulation, right? I'm, I'm, you might even get punished for doing something wrong or, or lack of attention altogether or neglect. And then you get extra attention and praise when you do something right. And by doing so, I am reinforcing this quote unquote good behavior. And that's just basic learning and things that all parents do. And the reason that I bring that up is because that is emotional manipulation in a lot of ways, but I don't really see it necessarily a bad thing all the time. It can be, but a lot of times it's not, and it helps us learn, grow, and develop. So parents who manipulate over a course of childhood and instill like negative beliefs in us and the world around us is not the nature of everyone's childhood, but parents who are depressed or have their own issues with the world and their own situation can put those things onto us, right? Nature and nurture. We genetically are more predisposed for certain things because of our family and our family line and what ailments have, you know, others have struggled with or what things, uh, good things they have, right? All these genes in our system, um, make up who we are little by little, right? And that can be good or bad. And parents who are struggling with their own things, so that's nature. Nurture component is, let's say we're more predisposed to depression because our mother has it than we're born. And then our mother is super depressed. And so all she talks about all day is just the negative things and how bad things are and how much she doesn't enjoy anything. It's just really a Debbie Downer, for lack of a better term, because she's really suffering. That is also, you know, it's kind of part of that like emotional neglect or emotional abuse as a result of her mental illness. Now, I don't say this to say that your parent is doing this on purpose. Some parents do. They could be a narcissist or a sociopath and they could be manipulating us to get us to do their bidding and do things for them. But this negative view of the world, unless it's made to uh, cause you to be more dependent on the parent. I don't believe it's that. It sounds like it's more this abuse is happening in your life be- as a result of your parents' mental illness. And they're still responsible because they're responsible to get help for themselves and to be aware of what they're saying to their children because it could have a lasting effect. But I'm just saying that they're, the mental illness could be the reason. It doesn't condone the behavior, but it explains it a little bit. Does that make sense? I want to distinguish that because I don't want anybody to think that just because someone doesn't mean to do us harm, that our pain or trauma isn't valid because our pain and trauma is still valid because they still did harm. I can accidentally run someone over with my car. I'm responsible for that, even though it was an accident, right? What is it called? Like, uh... I forget the word, involuntary manslaughter. It's still manslaughter, right? You still killed somebody. You still ran somebody over. Apply that to this. Just because it was accidental doesn't mean that there wasn't harm done. So you still have every right to feel upset, every right to feel traumatized, every right to struggle um, because that thing still happened. Does that make sense? Am I answering the question? I feel like I got off topic and I apologize. Um, Is there such a thing as subtle manipulation? Yes. Okay. So I feel like I talked about that enough, but if you have follow-ups, you let me know. With that and my all over the place answer, let's move on to question number seven. This says, hi, Katie. Asking this again, hope it gets picked. It did. Hello, hello. Okay. It says, how would you tell um, if you, oh, how would you 
tell if you're being manipulated. So how can you tell if you're being manipulated? Every time I have arguments with my mom, I find that she mixes in truths with her own emotions and I end up really confused. Was I truly selfish for not understanding her better and seeing things from her perspective? I'm always swayed by the legitimacy of her arguments. I'm so confused that I don't even know how to fully, to explain this fully and I'm not even sure if I'm making sense. But if you do answer, thank you. Of course. Let's dig into this. Now, People who manipulate usually do so in, I mean, there's various ways, but the most common is either emotional manipulation or gaslighting, okay? And let me explain these a little. So emotional manipulation is probably the most common from mothers. And why? I don't know. It's just in my experience, and you can disagree, but in my experience, it's most common. Emotional manipulation is when a parent or anybody in our life uses... Um, they try to evoke emotion in us. Like, um, okay, I had a really uh, a bad boyfriend like years and years and years ago. And he would always try to like crawl back in my life. And for a while I was so young and stupid. I like didn't know how to keep him out. And then my mom would be like, why are you talking to him again? And I was like, I don't know. He called me. He was like, my life is in such shambles. He would use my people-pleasing behavior and my urge to, to care, my urge to help as a weapon against me. And he would use that as emotional manipulation to get me to respond. You follow? And so that that emotion that it would evoke inside of me was used against me. And when I was manipulated that way, mothers can do this through guilt. Like you don't know the trials and tribulations that I went through to bring you into this world. And you know how much I sacrificed for your life. That's emotional manipulation and it's not okay. No, you didn't tell them to bring you into this world and they knew or they should have known what it was going to take to have a child and you don't owe them for that. Okay. So there's that. Then the second component is gaslighting. And this kind of sounds like, I'm not sure. I'll dig into more what your mother's doing, but gaslighting is when we tell people like, oh, you're remembering it wrong or no, that's not what happened at all. Right. We, we, we question Every, they make us question everything so much so that we question our own sanity. Like, oh my God, I don't even know if I remember that right. Did I make that up? Maybe I did make that up. I swore that happened. And nothing frustrates me as a person more than having someone try to do this to me. When I know something happened and I'm like, no, that's not what took place. And someone in my life argues differently. I just, in my head, I'm just like, we just have to agree to disagree because I refuse to allow myself to be gaslit. <laughs> now, maybe it's just because I'm so sensitive as a therapist, but it always just like, you know what I mean? Like it triggers that my spidey senses are like, ooh, I don't think this person is a good person. I'm going to have to watch it around them. And I think we should all be kind of acutely aware. If someone makes you feel like that's not what happened and you're like, yeah, like you search in your memory, you're like, yeah, it's best to just say, hey, I think we just remember it differently and that's okay. Instead of going into an argument because sometimes that's their goal and other times it's just not worth it. So anyways, okay. So that's the other is gaslighting. Now, I think that potentially it sounds like your mom is emotionally manipulating you because you said that she mixes in truths with her emotions, but it also sounds a little bit like gaslighting. That's why I feel like it's kind of this combination here. And the fact that you have that question, was I truly selfish for not understanding her better, to me says that she's told you you are, which again is emotional manipulation. And I'm very, I'm very suspicious of your mother and whether or not she's a narcissist or maybe... I don't know, does she struggle with attachment? Maybe she has a little BPD and is acting out and lashing out, doing like a splitting behavior on you, like you're good or bad or something. I'm not sure. Um, 
But the fact that you're so confused about it and it doesn't even make any sense leads me to believe that both of these things are happening. Your mom is using her emotions as a way to manipulate you because you care for her and she's your mother. And rightfully so, you're a good person, right? But she's using it against you. And so I try to pay attention to that and just acknowledge when she's trying to poke and evoke emotion. She could even send you some like crazy texts about trying to, you know, like, I just love you so much. You know, I hate that we argue and I just wish you wouldn't talk to me that way. Right. There's, it's always like wrapped up in a like jab. So pay attention to those things. And then if you feel like she is telling you remembering things wrong or that, you know, trying to confuse you on purpose, I would just remove myself from those conversations if possible. Or when you feel like she's using her emotions as a a tactic to manipulate, like making you feel guilty, trying to elicit, you know, guilt, embarrassment, or shame from you. It's okay to say something like, you know what? I feel like we're just both too emotional to continue this conversation. Let's talk more tomorrow. And you you walk away. Now, I know that can be hard, but I can tell you with practice and as you do that, you will feel so, so much better. Okay. I hope that makes sense. And I hope that that's helpful. Now let's move on to question number eight. This question says, hey, Katie, greetings from Finland. Wow. Hey, 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 hey. It says, my question is about why my voice turns into a little child in therapy. It's funny how we have themes sometimes, you guys. Lots of like child um, behavior, parents and emotional abuse manipulation. It's like the theme. Okay. It's barely audible. And I want to sit in the corner during therapy. And I sometimes do because it feels safe. Good. I'm glad you do. It's okay to do that stuff in therapy, by the way. Pick a different chair, sit in a corner, uh, cover yourself with a blanket, things like that. I can't look at my therapist and I feel so young and little. I don't want to act this way, but it's so automatic. For reference, I'm 45 and I'm working with my therapist for complex PTSD, but I struggle doing inner child work. I don't believe it's real yet. Here I'm acting like a child. I honestly uh, like feeling or acting like a child in a therapy session, but feel unable to meet whatever needs this is on my own outside of therapy. What is this? A need for attention? I'm so confused. This is wonderful. Thank you for asking this question. Now, I would I want to tell you that you don't have to work on this outside of therapy just yet because you're not ready, and that's okay. Inner child work is difficult, but the thing that's kind of beautiful here is that your inner child is so ready to do what the work you're doing that she comes out or he comes out. I, I think don't know if this is he or she in full force when you go to therapy. Just the the sheer act of going. And being there brings that child out. It brings that small part of you that wants to speak and wants to be heard and wants to feel safe. All of the urges and kind of authentic urges that you have while you're there, I guess, show you what your inner child needs. I hear safety. I hear the need to be heard and seen. I also hear, um, let's see, Hmm. I guess that's all that you've said. Oh, maybe maybe attention. You said a need for attention, question mark. So maybe there's a little bit of that as well. But that child of you is asking for those things and it's it's doing what it needs. And I would encourage you to embrace it as uncomfortable as it feels, as maybe judgmental as you want to be about your process. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Getting a patient to tap into the inner child and be able to even speak out of it or act like it in any way is such a struggle and sometimes impossible. A lot of my patients are never able to fully 
get into the persona of them as a child. And we do a lot of letter writing back and forth as a result. All very helpful, all very beneficial, but it's just wonderful that you can tap in this way. I see this as kind of a therapeutic gift. Now, I know it can feel probably really uncomfortable. And you could even bring that up with your therapist if you're able, uh, or if you can do it via email or text or at the right at the beginning of the session, if whatever you're able to do, I would try to do that just because I think it's important that they know. But it's not really, I mean, it could be for attention, but I think it's just your inner child is ready to heal. And because you're working on trauma, it's coming out in full force. It's ready. It's there. It wants to talk. It wants to be safe. It wants to feel heard and soothed probably. And needing attention isn't a bad thing. A lot of people think, oh, you're attention seeking. And they say it as if it's like a dagger, like bad, like, oh, you need attention? Shame on you. But I'm here to tell you, it's the human condition to need attention. It's okay. We're primed for it from birth. It is part of our development, part of how we survive and continue existing. It's necessary. So, Let's not use that as a negative thing anymore. Is this maybe a need for attention? Possibly, and that's beautiful and okay. Now, there was a comment on this, and it says, as an add-on, can you talk about why we talk like children in general? Like I go to work and I'm completely normal and professional, and then I come home and start talking like a child and using words like daddy rather than dad. I'm 21. Maybe because we feel comfortable being vulnerable, but why is it that my most comfortable self is like a child version of me? I think sometimes we can revert into childlike behavior, especially around our parents, because of the dynamic of the relationship. And it's often that with our parents, we haven't fully allowed them to get to know adult us. Or, or they haven't shown interest in getting to know adult us. And I'll even speak personally. I think there were many years where I, I wouldn't, it's not that I wouldn't let my mom in. It was like she knew a part of me from growing up. And then when I moved away and went to college, like she never really got to know me because I moved away. And so there was a part of me because I moved. It's like she never really got to know adult me. And it wasn't until I was probably like 24, 25 that I started calling her more regularly. I talked to my mom almost every day. And through that, she's gotten to know adult me. She just didn't have a chance before. And so when I would go home, I would act more childlike because she would still treat me more childlike because that was the Katie that she had known. Does that make sense? So sometimes I think that can happen. Also, I think when we have people who take care of us and that's the role, like the dynamic of the relationship, we can just slip right back into that. So when you go home and you're 21, it's your dad and he's protective of you and you might just feel more comfortable with him, letting him run the roost and being the child or more childlike version and not being too adult. And part of that could be um, to keep ourselves protected. Part of that could be because that's our role in our family. Um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't worry too much about it unless you feel like it's impairing something, like you don't think your relationship with your dad is growing or you feel like it's a fake persona that you put on. Like if it's disturbing or upsetting to you, that's when I would try to work on it. And that would be some of that inner child work or maybe just exploring the dynamics between you and your dad or whoever it is, you know, in this case, the person saying dad, but if it's like your mother or your brother or aunt or whatever, we might want to explore why we feel the need to be childlike. What is the urgent? Where's that coming from? Is it because it feels safer to be a child and not be too confrontational as an adult? Or were we not given permission to act adult-like? Kind of like we talked about earlier in this episode, you know, if we can be a little bit curious, maybe is there trauma in our past or abuse? Um, being curious about that and exploring those dynamics could be helpful as well. 
The final question, question number nine says, hi, Katie, I have had some symptoms of OCD since I was like five years old. How come OCD symptoms like intrusive thoughts or compulsions get worse over time? I thought this was a great question. That's why I selected it kind of randomly. OCD, if you don't know, is an anxiety disorder and it stands for obsessive compulsive disorder. And the way that it works is we have an obsession, meaning I let's say I obsess over checking things. That's one of the most common, by the way. People always think it's like washing hands and keeping a clean house. Mm-mm. Checking things is one of the most common. And that means that like I have to check the stove to make sure it's off a certain number of times. Now that number of times can be anything from like six to 24 to God knows. It's something that we have created in our brain. We obsess about checking. I need to check that the lights are off. I need to check that the stove is off. I need to check, 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 check. So many times so that So we obsess about it. Compulsion is doing the checking. And the reason that we do that is because we believe if we don't do that compulsion, then something bad will happen. And so our anxiety builds in that obsession part until we do the compulsion. Then we feel our anxiety go down until it starts building again. And we get caught in this OCD cycle. Now, the reason that it gets worse if it goes untreated, well, it only gets worse if it goes untreated is what I should say. Because we keep reinforcing the obsession and the worry. So every time we do that compulsion and our anxiety goes down, we tell our brain the only way to feel relief is by doing that certain thing. And the only way out of this OCD cycle is to not do that compulsion. And you slowly prove to yourself that it's nothing bad is going to happen and that it's not so scary to not check all the time. And it's hard and you have to fight back and your anxiety is going to build at the beginning. So you're going to need to have some resources and some support, like a therapist, a friend, and some other coping skills like distractions and things to do. But if we can just hold off, the longer we can hold off and put off doing that compulsion, I swear to you, the better we will feel and our anxiety will build and then it will dissipate and we will feel okay. And we'll realize I guess if I didn't check my stove eight times every time before I leave the house, I'm okay. I can just turn it off and check it once and then walk away, right? And we just have to prove to ourselves that it's okay, that we don't have to do it. And the only way to prove it is to not act out in that compulsion. And then the anxiety will go away. And it's tricky and I know it's hard, but trust me when I tell you it's worth it and you'll save so much time in your life um, by doing the work, okay? Thank you so much for sending in your questions. I hope these answers were helpful. They're always so wonderful. It just gives me such insight into where you guys are and what you're working on and gives me ideas for future videos and just things that we should be talking about. And I've been trying to do more YouTube short videos too and TikToks and things. So I'll probably take some of these questions and answer them in shorter form over there. But keep your questions coming. Thank you so much for your support. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week and I will see you next time. Bye. Your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always.